do something a little bit different. I'm been sitting back there in my office thinking about continuing with uh, the messages in John's Gospel, which we've been doing in John uh, in our class here. But I I've been thinking about something lately that uh, I think we're all we've experienced this like when somebody comes to you and they're new in town and they're looking for a particular place and and when they mention the place uh, you know where it is uh, and it's to you very simple how to get there and so you begin to give a stranger the instructions as to how to get to this place and so you're standing there and you say you turn here and you go up here and you go to the light and then you turn left and it's, you know, it's right there on the right, something like that. And in your mind, you can see it as you're describing it. You can see it. But the person that you're talking to, they're listening to you and they're shaking their head, you know, and they don't want to appear dumb. And so they're shaking their head like they understand everything that you're saying. And then when maybe if it's a couple, they drive away and the husband uh, turns to the wife at the very first turn and says, did he say to the right or to the left? <laughs> and uh, then you go down the street a little bit further and you're still trying to recall exactly what the instructor had to say about how to get to such and such a place. And I, I think that I'm very guilty of being that way uh, when it comes to teaching the Bible. I, I read and study these things uh, many times for hours. Uh, I'll walk around thinking about it and um, sometimes for days, sometimes for months, even sometimes for years, trying to understand things that are hard to be understood. If it was easy for me, then I would readily see what the meaning is and, and then go on about my business. But there, there are things that are hard to be understood in Scripture uh, but it's because of the human condition. And a lot of times it, it takes many years for people to realize just how difficult that problem is and what the Lord is dealing with in dealing with uh, the natural man in giving him directions. And a lot of times we listen to what the Lord has to say and we are nodding, we sit in the church, yeah, we, we get it, we get it. And not minutes after a message we get off and we're thinking to ourselves, what was it he said? Or is that what he meant kind of thing? And um, so down here on this earth, the Lord is dealing with people 
that are really without understanding. And I, I'm one of them. And so why should I be surprised that it would take me sometimes months and years to really get a simple point, just a simple point? But sometimes it does. And so I decided that because of really some things that were brought up at cottage prayer meeting and different things, it, it made it clear to me that there was a need to review some of these things that I talked about. Uh, I guess it was this past Wednesday night. I guess it was. And uh, I've had, I think, three messages so far uh, on things hard to be understood. And so I was sitting back there thinking maybe what I should do on some of these things that, to me, personally, have had a life-transforming effect on the way I understand this message from heaven. And if it has affected me this way, and I don't know but what, it shouldn't affect all of us this way when we really understand it, what's being said. And so I'm not sure how good a teacher I am. I don't know how, I, I, I often wonder to myself, did I get across the point? Did, did, did the people sitting out there actually understand what I was attempting to explain? And <clears throat> so I thought to myself, I better just review this a little bit. And so I want to review just a few things about this uh, chapter, Hebrews 6, which I believe is an example of one of the places that Paul was talking about. Uh, or rather Peter, when he said that Paul had written things that were hard to be understood. And so this past Wednesday night, I talked about the promise and the oath and why this was so critical to understand. Because in that chapter, <clears throat> as it begins, there are those that get close to the Lord. They taste the good word of God. They become partakers of the Holy Ghost and, and uh, to some extent enter into the message of the good world to come, the promise of heaven and all of that. But I pointed out that in the crossroads of that passage, the Lord is introducing us to uh, the most dangerous problem that any human could ever have. And that is the freedom to not believe the horrible message from heaven, because it's horrible. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a message of death. Anybody that does not believe that the Bible uh, contains a, a message of death is, uh, is not reading the Bible and understanding. 
It's a message of death. That's why Paul said, I, I die daily. He got the message. He understood it when the Lord said, if you try to learn truth without me, you'll be ever learning and never able to find it. That's a problem. When you read Romans chapter 7, as Paul explains the problem of the old nature, I'm telling you, he said that getting saved does not convert it. It does not convert the old nature. That's something I didn't used to understand. It's hard to understand that. You think, okay, salvation is being converted, and we think that that involves the total person. No, it does not. And Romans chapter 7 is a perfect uh, lesson or teaching from the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians ever lived, saying that he was still struggling with that old nature and he had been writing mysteries hidden in ages past. A man who definitely was saved, but he was struggling with an old nature even after salvation. And I'm telling you, there's precious little teaching on that. And as a result, a lot of people who profess to get saved and who genuinely are struggle with assurance of salvation because after, you know, this honest, um, um, I guess, um, uh, interchange with the Lord. You, you go to him and you say, Lord, I, I want to be saved and I, that's what I want more than anything else in the world. And you really mean it. It's honest. And a couple of weeks later you find out that you're still having dirty thoughts. You're drawn to the world and the love of the world as much as you ever were. And it hasn't changed at all. It hasn't changed at all. And so I'm telling you, one of the passages, one of the statements in the Bible that is very little understood is why Paul said, I die daily. Why did he have to die every day? The reason is because the old nature cannot be converted. The only thing that you can do is die to everything that you are. Your thoughts and your ways, 100%. That's what that means. And you're going to have to deal with this the rest of your life. You're going to have to die daily the rest of your life. You're going to be in the struggle between the spirit and the flesh the rest of your life. Now, this is hard to be understood by people. And the reason it's hard to be understood is because we don't want to believe that it's as bad as God says it is, but it is. It is. And so there are two things that cause the Pharisees uh, to hate Christ. And it was because Christ's thoughts were not their thoughts and his ways were not their ways. 
They had a different way of understanding everything. And so there were two things that the Pharisees were holding on to with a vengeance of death to anybody that disagreed with them. There were two things they were hanging on to. And one of them was the fact that they were, now listen to this, the seed of Abraham. They were hanging on to that. We're in that genealogy. Abraham is our father. <laughs> and the Lord was coming along saying things that put them uh, in defense of what it was they were believing because he didn't agree with them. They didn't understand the message of the Bible. They didn't understand that God's promise to Abraham was a seed, but it wasn't them. It was Christ. It was Christ. The other thing the Pharisees were holding on to was Moses and the law. These were the two things that were so precious to the Pharisees. It was their genealogy, and it's the fact they had the Bible. And they were God's chosen people. And when John the Baptist came along and Jesus Christ came along and started preaching the truth, which is a horrible message from heaven, uh, John the Baptist ran into a problem. And so he turned to the Pharisees, who were the, you know, examples of man at his best state, and he told them, you go do works, meet for repentance, and then you come back. Because I'm not going to baptize you until you understand something about repentance. Well, what's repentance? Well, repentance is an acknowledgement that I've been going the wrong way all my life. And i got to turn around 100%. 180 degrees, and I've got to go that way rather than this way because I've been going the wrong way my whole life. And the Pharisees were offended by the preaching of John the Baptist. Then when Jesus Christ came along with his remarks, all you have to do is read Matthew chapter 23. He told them that they were blind guides. He called them a generation of vipers, snakes. <laughs> That's what he called them. He said, you go out there with your message to convert people and you make them twofold more of the child of hell than yourself. That's what he said. And they killed him. They crucified him. Because he claimed to be the truth. And they claimed to know the truth and they didn't. And so when you get to Hebrews 6, if you don't understand this background, I'm telling you, I, I could not really understand it until I understood what I'm trying to teach you or say this morning in this lesson. The problem that people had when Paul wrote this letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, that problem is still with us. I deal with people almost daily 
who believe they're going to heaven because of their denomination. Because of who they associate with. Because of the particular creed, which is the tradition of men that is taught in that church. I run into it on the, all the time. I mean, people, if you start talking to them about the things of God, it won't take them long to tell you, well, I'm a Catholic. Or I'm a Methodist. Or I go to the Episcopal Church. Or the Lutheran Church. Or the Baptist Church. And there are people that will get mad as a firecracker over you if you don't have Baptists in the title of the church affiliation that you have. I know. I've lived with it for years. And it's no different than the misunderstanding and refusal to really think about what God actually says in his word. Anybody that thinks that Baptists are going to have some special place on the side of Jesus Christ when they die does not understand this book. The Bible doesn't talk about a Baptist church. It doesn't talk about a Methodist church or Catholic church or any other kind of church. It talks about the church. And then the, the, the scriptures are so clear when it comes to the church, because he goes into great detail explaining to us in the book of the Revelation in the first three chapters that there are seven churches and all seven of them had a problem. And sometimes the problem is so bad you need to come out from among them and be separate. You need to find another church. So each one of them had a particular problem. Folks, we're supposed to acknowledge what those problems are and use the discernment that God gives us through reading his word. We need to find the right church that has the right kind of teaching in it. Teaching that is such that we end up like the Bereans who were more noble than those from Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures, which is the only reference point that God has given us. But there are true churches that have that reference point, that teach the Bible. And I'm running into people all the time that do not know what this book teaches. I've been a victim of this for a large part of my life, I have. And I thank God every day. This is the truth, every day. For his providence in bringing me to Southern Pines. And for that memory of those hours that I sat down with Kent Kelly and started talking with him. 
And his invitation to come down here and hear him preach. And I sat on the very back row, and I did. I heard what he had to say. And I'll never forget coming down here, standing right here in front of this church, in bedroom shoes, a sweatshirt turned wrong side out, and jeans, needing a little bit of a haircut. It was not overly long, but it was not as short as it should have been. And I stood in front of this church, and I didn't know anybody. I just knew the man doing the preaching. And I was so overwhelmed with what I heard in just one sermon, just one message. It was resolved at that time that this is where I'm going to go to church. As long as I have the health to do it. I'm going to do it. And I've been faithful to that for over 51, 52 years. I come to this place. Because this is where you hear the truth, I believe. Brother Charles preaches the truth. He sure does. He studies his book. And I believe if a person will go home and think about it, they'll find out that I'm telling you the truth too because it's in the book. I don't ask people to believe it because I say it. I don't know anything. I believe it because God said it, and that's why people in this church ought to believe it. And so the Pharisees, they had two problems, and the problems were related to Abraham and their genealogical association with them and Moses and the law and they had the law. They had the Bible and they were holding on to that as their salvation. Listen to me. You can come to Calvary Memorial Church with the law under your arm. King James Bible and die and lose your soul forever. You sure can. And there are people that think that they're saved because they got a King James Bible and they go to Calvary Memorial Church. And they know a little bit about Abraham. And that God said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And I'm up here to teach you that Abraham did not believe God. Now that's hard to be understood. You mean you're going to stand up there and say that God said that Abraham believed God? And here we've got a Bible teacher saying that Abraham did not believe God. I can prove it. I can prove that he didn't believe God. And yet Abraham is lifted up by the Apostle Paul as being the premier example of what it means to note that you're going to heaven. And that's what Hebrews chapter 6 is all about. It's about how you can know you're going to heaven.
But I, I want to refresh your memories on why what I'm telling you is absolutely the truth. I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And I'll prove it to you. And Abraham did not believe God. In the 12th chapter, in the first few verses, he's telling Abraham to get out of his country and he's going to take him to a land that he's going to give him. He's going to show him his land and how he's going to bless him. He's going to, he's going to bless him. And he said in verse 7 of chapter 12, And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord and appeared unto him. And so that's about all we learn about it <clears throat> in these first few verses. But then we read something kind of striking. We learn in the 11th verse that Abraham had a beautiful wife. She was very fair to look upon. That's what it says in verse 11. She was beautiful. I'm talking about a woman good enough, good looking enough to kill over. That's right. She was that good looking. And so in verse 14 it says, And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, what I want to show you is how Abraham did not believe God. And we're going to develop this. I'm going to prove it to you that he didn't. God had already talked to him about giving him the land. And... Uh, he was pointing toward the fact that he was going to have a seed, a promised seed. And he was thinking in terms of, you know, most people read it, they're thinking in terms of the uh, posterity of a person in terms of the future generations that they were going to produce. And so anyway, down there with Pharaoh, uh, Abraham's afraid that they're going to try to kill him over his beautiful wife. And so he uh, talked Sarah into telling Pharaoh that she was Abraham's sister. And so that's the first problem. Now I want you to look at something else. Turn to chapter 16. I'm going to have to jump over a lot of stuff. If you read the 15th chapter, he's talking more about the seed that he's going to have. And so Abraham, he gets that part. But there's specifics that he doesn't get. Now the 16th chapter. Abraham realizes that, okay, I'm going to have 
this promised seed. And there's something very special about this promised seed, this genealogy that I'm going to produce that's related to the promises of God. And uh, so he's looking around the situation. He's getting older and older and older. And it doesn't look like that his barren wife is going to have that child. And so him and his wife get together in the 16th chapter. Uh, they uh, try to help God out with their unbelief by him having a child with Hagar, Sarah's maid. And so that's what that chapter is about. Well, I'm not going to go into it any further in reading it. But Ishmael was born, and Abraham's thought that that's where the promise was going to be. It'd be through him, because that was actually his child. Man, it was his child. But because of unbelief, that was not where the, what God was talking about at all. Then in the 17th chapter, look at that. Verse 1, and when Abram was 90 years old and 9, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou, now notice this, perfect, perfect. Wow, boy, that's quite a standard. That's quite a hurdle to have to jump over to get up there to being perfect. How do you do that? Well, you have to keep following the message to Abraham and why God eventually said that uh, Abraham was blessed because he did believe me. He believed me. But he didn't for a long time because he didn't know quite how to believe God. He didn't know how to believe God. And I think a lot of times we don't either. We don't know how to believe God. And so in verse 17 of chapter 17, look at this now, because I'm proving to you that he did not believe God. Verse 17, then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, he said in his heart, he didn't want to confess what he was really thinking and, and God know it. And he says, it says that he fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? That's a joke. And, and shall Sarah, that is 90 years old, bear? That was inconceivable. You didn't know how in the world that would be possible. Now look at chapter 18. And let's read at verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? 
And the Lord said unto Abram, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child when I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto her according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a child. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Folks, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means to me. Anybody that knows how to read and understand anything, I don't see how they can conclude that Abraham or Sarah believed God. They didn't believe God. It was a joke. It was something to laugh about. That's what the scriptures teach us. Now I want you to turn to the 20th chapter. Twentieth chapter. We won't have time to read all of this, but the twentieth chapter has to do with Abraham traveling down into Gerar, which was Philistine territory. That's the Philistines were there, and uh, <clears throat> and there was a, a king of Gerar whose name was Abimelech. And so here is Abraham. He's already gone through this thing with Pharaoh concerning his good-looking wife. And here they are. They're getting older. And Abraham is journeying toward the south country. And he goes down into Gerar. And Abimelech, the king, uh, took Sarah. Why, why would he want to? A 90-year-old woman. <laughs> what in the world was so appealing about her? Well, let me tell you how to understand it. God returned Abraham and Sarah to that time of life. He rejuvenated them. And she became a good-looking woman again. Sure did. So good-looking that she was uh, somebody that a man would kill to have. That's how good looking she was. And so God intervenes. He did on two occasions when it came to her beauty. And he basically lets him know God lets Abimelech know that this is another man's wife and if he touches her, God himself will kill him. And um, so the Lord shut up the wombs of the women down there in Gerar. Look at verse... Uh, Look at verse, uh, well, let's just read verses 17 and 18, the last two verses. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. 
For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So the first thing that I want to bring out to you is when you go back and you read the account, God is making it clear. Now listen to this because this is the thing that's hard to understand. I have been carefully trying to teach that there's a difference between the faith of man and the faith of God. That's what I've been trying to teach. And all of these Old Testament records of Abraham's unbelief is because of what I've told us all and reminded myself as well, that human faith is always contaminated with doubt. Always. And you see doubt written all over Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. You can't look at them and say, well, they're a model of believing God, and that's why God accounted it to them for righteousness. No, he did not. Abraham eventually found something. And it's what I've been trying to teach. He found that he could not enter into the promises of God with human faith. He had to have the faith of Christ. And that's why it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's why God swore by himself because he could swear by no greater. He could not enter into a relationship with Abraham on the level of his faith. It was never strong enough. It would always have an element of doubt. But God's faith has no element of doubt. None. And Abraham believed God. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. The Pharisees did not understand what I'm telling you right now. And so they were glorying in Abraham as a person apart from God. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to glory in for anybody at any time in human history. The Bible makes it very clear, have no confidence in the flesh. The Apostle Paul said about himself, uh, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? When did he say that? Well, it was after becoming one of the greatest theologians on the face of the earth when it came to the truth. And he was so certain of what he knew, he said, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, be you followers of me, because I'm going to tell, tell it to you right. He told the Galatians, he says, who's bewitched you? To embrace another gospel. There's not another gospel. And so he went on to explain the truth. And so let's turn to Galatians uh, chapter 2. And I'll show you what Paul taught on this subject. Galatians chapter 2. Now, we've seen this before, but I, I, I want to try to connect it so that you can 
see it a little clearer, hopefully, hopefully, than maybe we have seen it before. But Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by, look at this, by the faith of Jesus Christ. Not the faith of Abraham, the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed at in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. Now, some people might think that I'm some kind of a, a false teacher. I want you to tell me how you can understand that some other way. I mean, I'm not the smartest thing in town, I'm tell you that. But I know what I just read. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. Not primarily the faith of Abraham, but the faith of Christ. What was it Abraham found? He found that. He found that his faith didn't work. He had uh, not believed God that the Lord was going to use his wife for this promise. And so his faith uh, resulted in him and his wife going through Hagar. That's how God can do this. It was inconceivable to him that a man 100 years old and a wife 90 years old could give birth to a child. That, that, that's not, that doesn't make sense. I'm telling you that Abraham did not believe God. He absolutely did not. They both thought it was a joke and laughed about it. And so when you get into the New Testament... You finally learn through the Apostle Paul how to understand correctly that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Something happened to him. He turned away from human faith, which always doubts, and he learned to embrace the faith that God had in himself, and there is no element of doubt in what God says. None. None whatsoever. I'm telling you that our eternal soul hinges on our understanding of this point right here. And I don't believe anybody can really theologically understand Hebrews chapter 6. And why the Lord said that it would be through two immutable things that cannot change. The promise and the oath. That will provide our soul an anchor that goes all the way to the holy of holies in heaven. Just these two things. And the promise is explained in Hebrews chapter 6. That it was not some kind of contract or dialogue or agreement technically with Abraham. It was a dialogue and an agreement between the Father and the Son. And the promise was made to Christ. 
not Abraham and his genealogical seed. It was not. Okay, so in Galatians chapter 3, if you look at that, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, I'll prove it to you, what I just said. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. But then Paul says something critically important that a lot of people do not read and think about. And that's the mistake, not thinking about it. He saith not. That's critically important. You ought to put parentheses around it. He saith not. And to seeds as of many. He didn't say that he was talking about the many children that Abraham would give. But as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. That's what is meant by God swearing with himself, because he could swear by no greater. He could not enter into some swear or some promise with Abraham, because Abraham didn't believe what he promised. He didn't believe it. Have you ever had somebody promise you something and you didn't believe it? The question might be, well, why wouldn't you believe it? Well, it's because you either didn't know the person or maybe you did know them and you didn't have a basis for really believing what they had to say. That's exactly what was going on between God and Abraham. God couldn't promise Abraham something and him benefit from it just based on the promise because Abraham didn't believe him. He did not believe God. <laughs> it's, it's in the book. That's what it says. It was a joke. They laughed about it. It was a joke. And so the Lord entered into a covenant relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what the Lord wants us to enter into. He wants us to enter into that. Because the only way that you can understand, the, listen to this, the doctrine of eternal security. <clears throat> is it has to be without element of doubt. You're not going to find that kind of faith, not in man, throughout the whole of human history. Not there. But you find it in Christ. And he proved it with writing a book of Bible prophecy where you can count on what God had to say with no element of doubt in it. Everything that he says is going to happen is going to happen. So shall the word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. That's the doctrine of eternal security. Well, what did God promise you and me? He promised that if we would put our total confidence in the faith that he has in himself to do what he promised to do, we could have the hope of eternal life without element of doubt. That's what the Bible teaches Now look at uh, chapter 3 
And let's read on down to um, verse, we're starting at verse 17. We just read verse 16. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, he's entering in, he's, he's bringing something else into this thing. And it's Moses and the law. And he's connecting this with the promise to Abraham. But we've now understood what that promise actually meant. It was to Christ. But now we're talking about the law. For if the inheritance be, in verse 18, uh, for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if, it, if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And so he's talking about the law now. This is the other thing that the Pharisees looked at as their hope for salvation was they had the law. They were the children of God. They had the Bible, the Word of God. Well, Moses came up and got the law. You remember? And he comes down with it, sees those people down there worshiping idols, gets mad, loses his temper, and takes the law and breaks them, breaks the tablets of stone. And so God told, told Moses, you go chisel out two more tablets, but I don't want you to write anything on it because you ain't got enough sense to write anything on it. I want you to bring me two tablets that are blank. I want you to come up the mountain, and I'm going to, with my finger, I'm going to write the Ten Commandments on it a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second giving. And God wrote the Ten Commandments on there. Well, Moses had broken the first few. Well, why did, what's the symbolism of all that? Well, it's, that, it's this. There's not a man alive that can keep the law of God. He's going to break them. And if you, if you sin at one point, you've broken them all. That's what the Lord said. And so the Lord sent up a plan. And it was this. I'm, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build an ark, which is a coffin. And I want you to take the manna that I gave the children of Israel to eat, which is a symbol of his word. I want you to take Aaron's rod that budded which is a picture of resurrection from the dead. I mean, after it had been cut off, it blossomed. That's resurrection from the dead. And I want you to put something else in that ark. I want you to put the two tablets of stone that I carved, that I uh, wrote upon the second time. I want you to put them in the ark. 
The ark is a picture of Christ. The coffin is a picture of the death of Christ. And the mercy seat and the blood that was put on top of it is all a picture of what Christ was going to do. So the Pharisees did not understand that the only one who could keep the law and not break them was Jesus Christ. And the message from heaven, the horrible message from heaven is you cannot break the law in one point or you're going to hell. He said in Matthew chapter 5, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're going to hell. That's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Well, who kept the law in every point? Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about the two things that give you an anchor to your soul. And the two things is the faith of Christ concerning what he promises. you got to receive that. It's the faith of God that has no element of doubt. The other thing that you have to receive is the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way you can be perfect. He told Abram, he said, walk before me and that be thou perfect. Well, how are you going to do that? There's one way you can do it, and Abraham found out what it was. You have to receive Christ's life, which was perfect as your life. That's what Paul meant in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul found the same thing that Abraham found. And so when you read that Abraham uh, believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, you, you go back and you read the Old Testament and you discover he didn't believe God at all. That's because he had to find something. And that's what Paul is, is talking about in Romans chapter 4 with the question, what has Abraham found? What did he find? He found out that human faith is full of doubt. Human faith doesn't believe God. Folks, I can stand up here and tell you that I know if Jesus Christ comes today, this man is going to heaven based on two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie so that I might have a strong consolation, strong comfort, an anchor of the soul that's sure and steadfast that enters into the holy of holies in heaven. That anchor is on my soul. And it's based on the faith that Christ has in himself, and you can believe it, because there's no element of doubt in it. We have to believe in what God can do, not what we can do, but what God can do. He can save us. He sure can. And we cannot live a sinless life. We can't be perfect, but 
He is. And so we have to receive that life that is perfect in order to go to heaven. Folks, that is the doctrine of eternal security. There's no other way, no other way to understand it. No other way. So I'm done. I, I don't think I'm going to come back to this. I, I, if anybody still lacks some uh, understanding of something that's said, maybe we could sit down and talk privately and personally and talk about it. And maybe I can learn as much as you do uh, by listening to your questions because there's a lot of things that I do not know. But there's some things that I'm glad I do know. Our, our time is gone. Brother Jim, dismiss his brother. <laughs>